Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to Firing Synapses. This is a show all about exploration. I want to learn what makes you, you. This includes your hobbies, passions, whatever else drives an emotion. However, if you want to come on just to vent about what's currently bothering you, I'm perfectly fine with that as well. My goal for this show is for you to have a good time, learn something, and have the opportunity to talk about what you normally would not get a chance to share with others. Thank you and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. For those return listeners, I thank you very much. I appreciate all the love. For those of you who are new to this endeavor, I am your host, Matt. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about immune diseases. Uh, Most notably, we're going to be talking about, and I'm probably going to mess this up, and I'm sorry, but multiple sclerosis, sclerosis, or MS, which is way easier for me to say. So since I only know what my friends tell me, um, I have a guest on the show. Uh, first time to the show, I wanted to welcome my really long time friend, uh, Candace, to the show. Hello, Candace. Hello. And it's multiple scleros. <laughs> now I can't. <laughs> multiple sclerosis. It is a tricky one. <laughs> yes, that's that's why I like MS way better. Just because yeah. that's way easier to say than that. I, I looked at it, I tried to like hit the button of how to say it, and I I, I can't. <laughs> so MS for me, that's that's where we're gonna go with. Um, so can you give um, and we we can go more into detail later, but a kind of a brief description of what it is, what it does, how it affects you, and then we can go further into detail as we go on. Okay. So with multiple sclerosis, um, actually your white blood cells are attacks, attacking your myelin sheath. That's around your nerves. And it happens in the brain, cervical, and thoracic areas. So um, cervical being like right below your head and then down to the thoracic. But the lower lumbar area apparently is not affected by multiple sclerosis, which is interesting. Um, and I get MRIs. That's how they first diagnosed me. Um, so in the MRIs, they can actually see lesions where the, um, white blood cells have, um, kind of like corroded the area where the myelin sheath is no longer there. And the, uh, effects I had in the very beginning before I had my diagnosis even was tingling in my fingers and it was driving me nuts and going to like a regular doctor and they're like, Oh, it's probably, you know, whatever. They just say something that has nothing to do with it. They send you to physical therapy. You do the physical therapy to spend all this time and energy on that, no change. And then finally, then the orthopedic doctor saw me, then another orthopedic doctor. The second one did a, um, it's a test where they put needles like in your arms and hands. Apparently they do that for people with carpal tunnel too. And it's basically to make sure that the tingling wasn't coming from carpal tunnel. And when it, when they figured out it wasn't in my case, 
they said, all right, we're going to have you see a neurologist because you might have multiple sclerosis right then and there. She could say that. And I was like, wow, how about that? Yeah. So that's when the journey began of having like more of an answer. And it took another six months before, well, at that point, it was probably another four months before I got the diagnosis, which is pretty fast. From my understanding, going to different support groups for MS, um, some people waited two years or so before they found out. And some people actually would be at a state like right away to where they weren't walking and they didn't know why. Thankfully, it didn't affect me that way. It hasn't yet. It doesn't mean it won't. Um, and that makes it a little scary. Um, yeah, when I was first going to those meetings before I got the official diagnosis, but kind of had an idea that that's what was going on, um, I was getting really scared because all of these people in the meetings were more severe in their symptoms to where you know, they were in wheelchairs and using walkers. And it really freaked me out, actually. Um, some of them were younger, too, like around my age. But so far, I've been lucky. And I'm on a medication that's been working. I have to get MRIs um, every, either every six months, or I could stretch it to like once a year. They do contrast also. Where they uh, put like I think it's called like glenium or something like that. They put that contrast into the vein uh, in the second part of the MRI to see, you know, the difference between without and with contrast, which helps them be able to identify, um, you know, areas that might have the lesions. And that's how they can determine if the medication's working or not. So as of right now, they're, there isn't a cure or anything like that. It's once you are diagnosed with it, you you have it for your rest of your life, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so far. I mean, well, I guess this is also debatable because um, there's a couple books that I've read. One was from somebody called The Healthy Plumber. because <laughs> <laughs> He is a plumber and he has like a YouTube channel and stuff. And he actually wrote a book that I read. Um, the reason I found out about him was because a friend of mine, um, his bass player actually um, knows the guy personally. So he mentioned that guy to me saying, hey, you know, you should look at his stuff. He actually overcame MS by eating healthy and on having a healthy lifestyle. And also... There's a guy that was in the, um, I believe it's the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, he wrote a book called When the Music Stops. And he actually went to the Barnes & Noble up in, um, I guess it's Cherry Hill or Marlton. And um, yeah, he did the book signing. Um, and I got to speak with him briefly. But yeah, he was originally diagnosed with it. He kind of just decided back then it was different with the drugs. Like I'm taking an oral pill, but back then it was injections. And I, and plus like the, it was called Copaxin, that medication, that medication calls people to have, and even still uh, people who've taken, have told me um, that it makes them real nauseous. It makes them kind of feel like they have the flu. So nobody wants to feel like that. <laughs> um kind of like the medicine should be helping you, not making you feel like crap. Um, so for that reason, 
um, he decided he wasn't going to do it. He wasn't going to take the medicine. He just decided to start eating healthy and having a really healthy lifestyle too. Uh, even before this guy, healthy plumber and cause he's older and 10 years later, he happened to get another MRI and he had no symptoms anymore, no lesions at all. So he no longer had it in the doctor's eyes. He no longer had multiple sclerosis. Um, I'll also say that, so my symptoms started in June, 2017. And when I started to have an idea that it might be MS, I think it was right after the first MRI I got where it actually spelled it out on paper. It was either um, multiple sclerosis or vascular sarcoidosis. And I looked them both up to get a more clear understanding of how they were similar. And they were both um, having to do with inflammation. So I said, hmm, I should go on an inflammation diet, I guess. And my friend Sama actually, like, she did that for herself. And she was pretty much still eating real healthy. So I kind of like started talking to her about it. And she helped me out with, you know, taking it a step farther, watching all these like cow spiracy and uh, <laughs> like about the um, different shakes. Like there's, uh, I forget what that one's called. I don't think it was what the health, but that's another one I watched. That was a little bit different, but there's a whole bunch of documentaries on how to eat healthy and why it's important to eat healthy and why meat's bad and how you can use veggies to supplement the protein you need and things like that. So, um, I went ahead and started doing that. I said, you know, I just need to try this because I don't have answers right now. And I don't know how long I have to wait. And it was driving me nuts, tingling in my fingers when I had to type and write. And plus it was more than that too. Fatigue, achiness, that was also symptoms. I definitely noticed it was a lot harder for me to get through my eight hour work shift. Um, so when I started doing that like doing all those uh, smoothies with like your kale, spinach, and then some fruits and add in some other supplemental things like maybe pine nuts and, you know, cran raisins, things to make it taste good, but also things that could up my protein value, almonds and all that. Then um, a week and a half is all it took and the tingling in my fingers went away. So I have some belief that maybe that's a thing. But if you talk to doctors, they'll be like, nah. And also too, you have to weigh, like, do you want to take that risk that you, it could become worse if the healthy eating doesn't make it go away. Um, so it's kind of like a fine line that you're teetering, I think, by choosing not to take the medicine, especially now that like the Tecfidera, the only really bad symptom I get is if I don't have enough protein before I eat it, if I don't eat enough protein before I take the medicine, um, it'll cause blushing, it's called, where my face feels like it's on fire and it gets beet red. Um, so it's kind of nasty um, side effect. But as long as I eat something high enough in protein, that doesn't happen to me. That's the only big thing I found with it. So you're talking about your, your pills and your healthy eating. Um, what did you do first? Are you still doing like healthy eating or still doing your pills? Does, I mean, I know you said after what, like a week and a half, two weeks of eating healthier that your tingling went away. 
do you still find that to be the case of you know it's it might not be gone but it's severely reduced and you don't feel as tingly or as bad as you could feel so the problem i have with continuing to eat healthy i mean that was crazy the diet i went on was really <laughs> to me it was insane but i did it somehow um cuz from that october until the following february which doesn't seem like a real long time but it kind of is when you're you're not touching meat you're not eating sweet stuff, sugar, you're not drinking sugary stuff. Everything is just very pure. And um, like I was basically on a vegan diet, like no meat byproducts, even like really intense. And I did that for that time frame. But then what happened was I had some big stressors pop out in life, and it was hard for me to maintain that healthy lifestyle when I was in between like a relationship breakup and having to move where I was living, moving into my mom's, having condensed space so much. And as it is, it was already a big chore because living in Cumberland County, like you don't really have as much resources, like where I was going on my trips up to Cherry Hill to get all the stuff I wanted. Cause there's Wegmans, Whole Foods, there's Trader Joe's, um, mom's market. That was a new one that was popping up too when all this was happening. But the thing is, is they're expensive. Like, I mean, if that's your main source of food, it's expensive and you want to get it fresh. So you might have to make quite a few trips when you're talking about some of these vegetables that you're getting and stuff and how quick you're going through them. So that became kind of more of an issue of how inconvenient it really was to maintain that diet. I've noticed over the past maybe year and a half, two years, even it seems like it's gotten a little bit better in terms of some of the options that even Walmart will carry some healthier items now, but again, it's going to cost more to do that. And money's also been more of an issue lately. Um, and especially after my broken leg and going on social security disability. So I, I can't do that at the moment, but I would absolutely want to go back to that when I feel like I'm in a situation where it's going to be easier. And oh my gosh, if an actual like Whole Foods or Wegmans popped up down here, that would definitely make life easier instead of taking that 45 minute drive to go up there. And that's if there's no traffic, you know, if I leave at the right time, because <laughs> coming home, we're going there, I might end up having to, you know, deal with more traffic and headaches. Now, uh, I mean, I know from like, just being your friend and stuff that you did have a um a pretty severe accident where you broke your femur if i'm not correct if i'm correct yeah that it, it was now I, I know you can't say for sure but does your ms have an effect on like your mood and maybe affected your driving or was it a total freak accident that just happened to hap happen to happen uh regardless of any, if you if you were quote unquote normal or you had some type of a disease um and then also how does ms affect your healing does it does it seem like it takes longer it's more painful um anything of that variety i i know i do ask all these long these compound questions and i'm i need to get out of this but it's okay i definitely am good at rambling on about things so that that helps too I'm just trying to think in terms of, of the first part of the question is kind of tricky because 
Yeah. Um, one, t- one time I had an accident before the one where I broke my leg. Um, and that one seems like maybe my MS and the stress of what was going on definitely could have impacted that situation. Um, because while I was working overnight, I was, um, my grandmom was in really bad health and she was, she was always like my, my, my main person, you know, like growing up, it's always somebody who I can rely on, depend on. And she had so much love for me and, um, she was really deteriorating a lot in uh, health, mental capacity and both. And I would worry and think about her a lot. And I think my brain was there when the one accident happened to me when I was at a stop sign and I was looking both ways, I looked right. Then I wait, I looked left, I looked right. And then I looked left. And I guess I did it in the wrong order because I, when I went, there's a red truck that boom, end up hitting me <laughs> coming from the right side. So I guess I should have looked right, looked left and then looked right. And I would have seen them. I don't know, but there was, it looked more like a straightaway to the right where on the left, there was a curve that was a little bit down the road. So I thought that was the more important side to do that double take for, but I, I guess maybe the guy was speeding and I even went back to that road. And I noticed like during the day um, when it was kind of real clear, it looks like almost like there's a little hill there and maybe there's a blind spot. But it's a real open field area where this happened. Um, so that one, it's so hard to say. And I think at that time, I might not have even had a diagnosis of MS, but that's what's crazy. Like the way stress can affect our body um, and our minds, like people will say that and you're like, oh yeah, of course, whatever. But to the extent, sometimes that it could do that. Like, I actually believe that some of the stuff that was going on, the stress I was dealing with also when I was in my master's program, um, working full time and 30 hours a week on top of that interning kind of set me up for like too much stress. And then my grandmom's health declining and all this stuff happening at once. My grandfather passed like three years before she did. So that was during that time frame too. And he too was like a big support person for me and somebody who, you know, we just did so much together when I was growing up that like it hurt a lot and all of this emotional baggage stuff going on and um, the stress levels, I think honestly might've been what created the multiple sclerosis. You know, it made it come out maybe Maybe it wouldn't have came out uh, as far as anybody in my family. I don't think that anybody's been diagnosed. Well, I know nobody's been diagnosed with it. However, I kind of believe my grandma may have had it because of how she always liked to go and lay down. Like, because that's, that's sometimes how I feel, you know, like, but back then they didn't really do a lot of testing. Like she passed at 93 years old. And she actually, um, you know, she, she was born in like the twenties. Um, but even my mom could say like growing up as a kid or my uncle that she actually did have, um, 
all like she was always that way because you could think, okay, well, older people, of course, are going to want to go lay down and chill and relax and they're going to be achy and stuff like that. But how often she would complain about not feeling well and wanting to lay down was abnormal, even in her like her 20s and 30s. She was always like that. So I believe she might have had it, honestly. Uh, It does skip generations like a lot of things um, from what I was reading about. So it's not out of the way to believe that for that reason too, she may have had it. Um, but nobody else that I'm aware of. And if they would be, it would be, you know, maybe two generations even before her. And she was, um, you know, <laughs> that, that was a long time ago because she was already born in the twenties. So oof. there would be no way of knowing back then, back that long ago. If correct me if I'm wrong, but it is a, a hereditary uh disease right you can't like pass it along to somebody uh like but you're, we share blood i'm not going to get get uh you know ms it's something that's uh hereditary true yeah it's hereditary now can it, I, I don't know like i was starting to say about um stress and emotional um intense situations that are just like that overwhelmingness and sadness and stuff I don't know if that can bring out something like that, or if you'd have to already have certain DNA for that to occur. Like at that kind of scientific level, I'm not quite sure. But generally speaking, it has been seen to be with people who have had somebody in the family that has had MS or maybe even another autoimmune disorder. That could even be. But it's definitely not contagious. So, (laughs) yeah, it's not like an STD or anything silly like that. But it, it is a situation where I can't give blood because, well, maybe I could give regular blood, but I tried to do the blood bank or the one where they pay you and they take like, um, just your platelets that I'm not allowed to give because they said, I need my platelets more than somebody else. (laughs) I'm not a candidate to give at those places because they have certain kinds of people that can't give, not because I could, uh, not because it would be bad for somebody else to get my blood, but because it would be bad for me to give it up kind of thing. All right, you have pretty much just enough for you or maybe a little bit more, but to donate is, uh, while good intentions, you're, yeah, you're doing yourself more harm than helping somebody else. Yeah. And it's a shame because I'm typo positive. Actually, I was having a uh, discussion with the wife about this and what, like I said, I'm not a um, blood born person. I don't know how, what the term for it is, but what makes, uh, or what's the difference between having a positive and a negative blood type? Well, I know with type O positive, we can give to everybody, but type O negative type O negative can give to everybody but they can't receive it from anybody but typo negative. Um, and the typo positive, I think we might only be able to, to get it from O positive and O negative people. So we would, I don't think we could get it from AB and A or B blood types. I'm not, I'm not positive about that part. Um, I haven't had to find that out. <laughs> Hopefully I <laughs> do, but this is just kind of stuff I remember from back in school when I was taking some pre-nursing classes, um, they got into the blood type stuff a little bit there. And I paid extra attention to that part because I'm like, oh yeah, well, 
I had just found out that I was typo because um, I was giving blood a lot back then. Um, yeah, those needles were really big <laughs> and they were really bad at giving them. So they would put it in and then move it all around. And then like, it made me anxious all the time to get like, to give blood later for just like basic getting blood drawn, you know, for your annual physical stuff. Um, even though those needles are so much smaller and also it affected my veins ability to actually provide the blood. Like sometimes it was squirt out real quick and then all of a sudden it would stop. Like it coagulated real quick and it wouldn't give them enough that they needed in their vials um, for the test they were running. So now the only thing I figured out is um, cause I took some pointers from some of these um, blood texts um, at like lab corn places like that, that would be like, you know, keep, keep yourself warm and drink enough water. And with the combination of those two things that help the blood move better. And that's been my only savior. Like even when I had to go get MRIs on Thursday and Friday this past week, um, they used a butterfly needle in my hand um, because they were having problems finding the, a good vein in my arms. And I mean, I gave blood back in my twenties. That was twenty years ago, and it, my veins are still weird from that. So I don't know. Even blood sucks, apparently. <laughs> um. So, uh, different. Well, same question, but a uh, similar field. But what's a butterfly needle? I never heard of that term. Oh yeah. So that's just the the smaller needles that they give babies, basically, when they take their blood. And they use it for adults when they put it in their hand because our hands, veins, and and I don't know. I guess they just, it's better to use, oh, yeah, because they would probably be going straight through things if they used a regular needle <laughs> like because it's a more dense area um, that they have to use a smaller needle. So they use those ones. To, uh, they use those on me to give the contrast instead of my regular bigger veins that could use a regular needle just because they, they weren't as good as the ones in my hand. So that's what they use when they put uh, IVs into your system when you're at the hospital? If it's like on the hand? Not always. Um, they could. If they have a problem finding a good vein, that's what the... Um, the MRI technician did on Thursday and Friday. And that has happened to me before too. But when I was in my car accident, that was like two and a half years ago. Um, but they actually did use a regular vein in my arm that time, but maybe those nurses were a little bit better at finding them too. Um, or maybe that day, maybe I'd had enough water at that time, I think I was drinking a lot of water then too, but naturally, even though I wasn't prepared, knowing I was going to go in there, <laughs> you know, it like happened very fast all of a sudden. Um, but, and it was late at night too, on top of that. But when they, um, did that IV with the piggyback and all, they were, um, able to use it in my regular arm because of the pain meds and everything like that that accident was crazy. Oh, but go back to your question earlier, that accident specifically, I don't think had anything to do with my MS because 
that person, it's almost like karma though. Cause I was explaining my other accident. I can't help but relate it that way for a moment because, um, that person was at a stop sign. I had the right away and, um, they stopped and then all of a sudden they went when I got really close. So it was again on a country road. Um, it was not the same country road, but it was very, it like runs parallel to this other road that I had my other accident on where that was my fault, but I still was so weird that I didn't see the truck. Or in this situation, it was totally flipped around where that guy was at the stop sign. Somehow he didn't see me and he went. Um, and that's where it caused the accident. My car spun all around 360 and then beyond into a field. And um, I knew that my leg was broken. That's what was so weird because I could see it sticking up, not through the skin, but it was like up. And I'm just looking down like, oh, my leg's broken. And uh, so I call up my guy and I let him know. And he's like, what did you just say? Because I guess he didn't believe it because I'm, I sound so cool and collected. You know, I don't know how. It hurt like hell, though, because I was trying to move to get out. And I couldn't because it hurt so bad. And my pain tolerance is generally pretty high, but not on that day. No, not with that situation anyway, I should say. Um, I mean, I had broken rib before and I was able to do all kinds of stuff for like three weeks and then finally realized it might've been broken when it was hurting so bad after doing some like climbing on the side of a mountain. <laughs> you know? like, um, that's when I realized, Oh no, that hurts more than it should. I thought it was maybe just bruised or something, but no. And then I found out it was broken, but with this broken leg, I knew right away it hurt like hell. In fact, I didn't even want to have them pull me out of the the car. So I don't think that it's made my pain tolerance any, I don't know. Cause I mean, just a broken femur is, is pretty terrible. Like, cause there was a lady in there, uh, after I had my femur surgery, she came in within 12 hours or so of me into this room that we were sharing and she was in the same kind of pain I was right after my surgery, like, you know, crying out in pain and everything. And I talked to her a little bit and she ended up telling me that the pain in her leg was so much worse than any childbirth that she's ever had. And she's had like three kids. One of them was really big, like 10 pounds. <laughs> and the fact that like she um, also had at least one of her kids without any epidural. And she's still like this, this broken leg hurts more than that did by far. So she kind of inspired me in the sense. I'm like, huh, I guess I could have a kid then. I mean, <laughs> I through this, I always kind of thought, Oh yeah, I don't want all that pain and nonsense going on. But I guess really when it comes down to it, even though that hurt like hell and it was terrible, like my pain tolerance overall is fairly good. Maybe also because I deal with like, the pain every day to a certain extent with the achiness and everything else. And I have to push through it. But the fact of having the broken leg on top of that definitely created extra barriers. Um, and it did cause longer uh, period of time for it to heal. Um, because my um, MS medication that I take, well, any of the MS medications or a lot of medications for autoimmune disorders 
actually um, are immune suppressants. Um, so therefore, you know, your immune system, well, it's already doing the wrong thing and it's like kind of overactive with MS, but now it's slowing it down and that medication could slow it down to the point where if you have something like a broken bone, it's going to be harder for it to heal. And, um, that did mean I had to take more vitamin T and vitamin D is already something that my, um, MS specialist told me to take. Um, after I got the diagnosis, it was that and B12, those two levels were very low because that's another thing they tend to be able to figure out based on, um, the tests that they do, whether or not you have MS. One of the things that will pop up is, you know, um, lower levels in those two vitamins. And then also the, uh, it's called a C protein that tends to be very high in people with, with MS, because that is, um, an inflammation thing. Like it's some way to test the body's level of inflammation, which is awesome that that's possible. It's not a test that they generally order with your regular you know, annual blood work or anything, but it's something that they would suggest if there's something going on that they need to kind of more pinpoint related to inflammation or something. Now, I want to go back to your accident of, um, so I, I can't remember, and I don't think you told it this time, but when you actually broke your femur, were you actually trapped in your car or did, I mean, was it, uh, did they have to use something like the jaws of life to get you out? And also, do you know how you broke it? Do you like, did you just hit your shifter into your leg or was it just the impact of, uh, the, the other car hitting you? What's really crazy about that is that my seat came disconnected and also the front of the car came in, like the dash came more toward me, um, on that impact too. Um, did you say it was from the side or the front that it hit you from? It was actually the side, like the front side. So it was both <laughs> like the front end. Yeah. There you go. Order panel or something like that. Yeah. So like where your headlights are. So not, not the side, not the front, but that 45 ish degree angle type of thing. So you, you're, everything's not going to go to the right or to the, back it's gonna go at an angle type of thing right yeah so when when he hit that area um i don't know there was a lot of spinning i remember everything was happening fast and when the car finally stopped i was shocked where i was i was like how am i going the other direction on the same road but i spun all around and it seemed like i went so far away but it just basically turned me around and put me over into the field a little bit <laughs> it was really strange. Um, and I didn't pass out, which is also very surprising. It kind of didn't hurt unless I moved. And I could have gotten out on my own if it didn't hurt, even though it was just a cramped space. But I wasn't literally like to where I couldn't move. It was only because of the pain that I couldn't get myself out. And so what ended up happening is they, oh my gosh, my boyfriend did end up showing up after he got done work, which was basically real close to when the accident happened anyway. 
Um, and so his coworker uh, brought him over to the scene and he said it was like a crazy action movie that you would, something you'd see on TV. There was like tons of fire trucks. They were looking under the hood. Um, there was a helicopter. There was two ambulances. There was a bunch of police officers, uh, police cars all over. And imagine this is happening in the middle of farmlands, you know, where nothing ever happens. It's looking like something like the end of the world that <laughs> would happen in the city. That's probably why you had so much uh, attention because they weren't really doing anything else. Hey, let's go check out this accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were some onlookers too, but um, I remember them telling me I had to get out of the vehicle because it might blow up. When they were under the hood, the fire people were telling the EMTs that were trying to get me out. And I was arguing with them because I'm like, you know what? When I tried to do it myself, it hurts you bad. So I, I'm just sorry. I'll, I don't want to get out. I just huh. I, can't, I can't get myself to the point where I can feel comfortable and okay with getting out of this vehicle. But they finally convinced me. Um even though when they told me about how it might blow up, I said, well, fine, I'll just stay here and blow up because I can't like, cause I kept trying to move myself thinking that if I can't do it, how the hell are you going to be able to do it and not hurt? You know, like, is it, cause I was just moving slightly and they were going to like completely get my leg out from underneath the dash. And somehow with the two seats and everything going on, they were going to, slide me out and i'm like you're gonna slide me out like my leg's gonna be dangling there what if like it falls off you know what if the part where it's broke it just is laying there and like separate i was terrified i'm like you've got to be kidding me no we're not doing this but that's it's kind of like a a more extreme example of ripping off a band-aid if you try to do it yourself you know, you're going to, you're going to feel every, uh, glue letting go of your hairs. But if someone comes up and just rips it off, it's done before you even know. So yeah. I, I, grant- wish, I wish it was like that in that situation because my fears were correct. When they went to pull me out of there, I said so many, and granted it's all these professional people, some of which I used to work around maybe when I was a crisis screener, you know <sighs> what I mean? There's like all these police officers, EMTs, uh, ambulances, all these, you know, and I'm kind of like in between Salem and uh, Salem County and Bridgeton. So, yeah, and I worked for both crisis centers. So I'm like, oh, no, this is so embarrassing. But at the same time, I couldn't even care. I couldn't filter it. It was just that bad. All the curse words that came out of my mouth and, and the level, the volume of which I was screaming was terrible it was very bad and um my boyfriend showed up pretty much just in time for him to hear me and he's like oh my gosh he had never heard me in that kind of pain i didn't even know you can combine those two cuss words together to make an ultimate cuss word (laughs) yeah that's basically what was happening there that was really bad and it's a shame. I mean, I got a helicopter ride that I couldn't even enjoy because I'm laying in there like so uncomfortable and ugh. And then you, how long ago was that? 
That was uh, July 2018. Okay. And you're still, I mean, obviously you're still feeling the effects of that. You can't like uh, run marathons or anything. (laughs) I was never much of a runner, but I sure was a hiker and I loved hiking mountains and I cannot, well, I like really liked rock scrambling where you kind of have to do like more like climbing, but not exactly rock climbing. Um, And I, I did, do a couple things rock climbing related and then even like it's called a via ferrata where you're using the metal bars but there it's a lot you're climbing but it's a little easier than finding the footholds like you normally would if you were just straight up rock climbing so all those different things i would do and white water white water rafting caving like i loved all that kind of stuff like real outdoorsy adventure stuff those um like go ape things where you do like the adventure courses up in the trees and everything. And I don't have that confidence level now. Like I'm lucky if I could try to go up a mountain for a mile, uh, that's not even that steep, you know, um, I have been able on some good days to walk an okay distance on flatland. Um, but actually walking in the mountains, like I did and doing climbing type of stuff isn't, isn't something I'm ready for. I mean, shoot, when I, um, first got in the accident, I couldn't go upstairs to the bedroom. My boyfriend had to bring the bed downstairs. Our living room became like a living room slash bedroom. It still is. I mean, I could easily go up the stairs now, but we just kind of like rearranged the house in a way that doesn't make sense to try to take the bed back up there. And plus like, we're looking to move. So why bother moving a bed up the stairs to have to bring it back down and in the near future anyway, but with it this long, we're just like, whatever it is, what it is it can stay. I mean, in a way it's kind of nice. I mean, you get done a long shift at work and you know, you can just stumble into that, into the door, fall into bed and go to sleep. You don't have to really do it much extra. You don't have yeah. to go upstairs. You don't have to go through rooms. <laughs> It's just a bummer trying to like entertain. It's just out of the question. We don't really have the space. The way we're utilizing the the main part of the house just isn't conducive to have guests. So that's kind of crummy. And especially so I felt when um, you know, I wasn't driving for the first nine months actually after the accident. Um, I couldn't drive because it was my right leg that was broken. So my right leg had to get strong enough and capable of pushing on the gas um, and braking, of course, without there being any issues. Um, and even getting in and out of a vehicle, that was tough. Even when I was allowed to start driving, it was hard for me to get in and out of the vehicle, um, whether it was a car or an SUV. SUVs were slightly easier with it being higher up. Because climbing down and especially climbing out of a car was pretty painful, but I would have to do it if I had certain appointments and maybe like my sister um, or my mom or something, if they picked me up to take me to the grocery store to a doctor's appointment, then it was, um, it was, it was tough having to deal with the car. Um, But then I was using the cat transport, which is Cumberland area transit. That was a blessing, actually, because it's like um, a van that comes and picks people up um, with medical appointments that can't drive. And I'm uh, that program, I'm just so glad was around because it, it made 
it possible to keep doing everything I do. Cause now I say most of my days I had to focus on doctor's appointments, the physical therapy three times a week. Like it, it adds up all this time of having to do these doctor's appointments, the uh, chiropractor twice a week. So it's like every weekday I had an appointment, but then it, the, the bad thing about it is because they pick you up and all these other people, you get picked up so early. Sometimes you're sitting waiting around in the doctor's offices because your appointment didn't happen yet, but they it was your turn to get dropped off. So you're gone from the house a lot longer than you would be if you just kind of drove yourself back and forth. So that was a downside. But then again, I wasn't working anymore. Um I ended up getting on social security, uh, disability. So that was, um, you know, my new job was just to make it to my appointments, get through them. And, um, you know, I'm glad it didn't happen during COVID because sitting around, you can't even sit and vote to doctor's offices. Now you gotta wait in your car and wait to be called. <laughs> so that, brings up a whole different set of questions but uh so this is all because of the accident and not because of the ms right it's all independent of each other it's just so happens that like you had your accident and ms it's not you can't do hiking and walking and stuff because of that it's they just happen to happen uh you know back to back yeah sort of yeah because the diagnosis of ms was um well, the symptoms started June 2017, diagnosis December 2017, right in between Christmas and New Year's. It's like, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Good luck next year. <laughs> you got the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and then it was July 2018 for the accident. So, yeah, that was happening pretty close to each other for sure. But I'd say one of the things that it did, which is so bizarre, but one of the ways I began looking at it, which is kind of maybe healthy, I don't know, but it's bizarre, <laughs> um, is that I was so worried about with MS, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to hike if I can't walk. I'm not going to be walking because I have MS. Like, what's that going to look like? I was so upset over that for quite a while with, you know, prior to getting the diagnosis and having the diagnosis, that was one of the big things in my mind. And then this accent came along and it said, Hey, this is what it's going to look like. <laughs> like, Hey, this is, this is it. Like, you're going to have to live life like this. You're going to be in a wheelchair. There you go. You're in a wheelchair for months. See what it's like. <laughs> okay. Now, now life's saying, oh, well, you, you you can walk a little bit. Here's a rollator. Go ahead and like roll around with this thing like a walker and and do some physical therapy. And, and this is what you're going to have to do to walk again if you end up not walking because of MS. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, you might be able to walk again. Um, So that's kind of cool, maybe. Because I get it. Like, it's not going to be the end of the world. I just have to stay strong like I did through the healing with the with the accident because of the broken leg. My back was messed up from it, too. That was an issue with um, my um, lumbar and um, sacral, I guess it's called, like the L3, L4, S1 region. Um, so... 
that area has um, not a slip disc, but it's the other common thing that happened to people and it causes pain. Like a hernia? Not not a hernia either. It's a, um, well, it, it's a problem <laughs> <laughs> where I actually had to get injections um, into my back. It was um, like the steroid injections, uh, epidurals. But instead of an epidural that goes into your spine for pain for pregnancy, it's it's one that goes into the areas where the nerves seem to be an issue, um, where they kind of have to try to pinpoint between those three regions that were bothering me where they should put the injection. So I had to do it three times. And then the other thing they were talking about was having to go in after the third time, if it's still a problem, they could go in and burn off the nerve endings. And that's called an abulation, nerve abulation. Um, but thankfully that didn't have to happen, but what did have to happen because of the, um, healing, not going the way it should that in December, 2019. So it's been almost a year. Cause I believe it would be like in another week as of like that time last year when I had to have a second surgery on my femur um, because the bone wasn't mending. And also like, well, it started to mend a little bit, but it was on like the inner thigh section of the bone instead of the outer region, which is more typical. Um, but my um, orthopedic surgeon knew right away, like, no, like this isn't good. It's, it's, it should have, started healing faster than this. So at this point, it's not going to do it on its own. And he's like, what we can do is put in a bigger rod. Um, cause that's what the femur repair is. It's basically a rod that goes along where the bone is broken. And then there are screws that hold it in like up near the knee and the hip. So, um, as much as I didn't want to have another surgery, I was like, well, this guy seemed to know what he's been talking about this whole like, year and a half. And I kind of like knew it was coming because he could, he warned me in advance that, you know, this is the way it might happen. And if it does, this is what it would look like and what I would suggest. So that's what he ended up suggesting, uh, two months before the surgery, like, you know, we're getting to that point and it's not doing what it needed to do. And I said, well, I definitely want it to be healed because if I chose not to do the surgery, I might not have, it might not have healed like at all because he was trying to say you'd reach your plateau for what we did. And since, you know, it, it didn't get to where it needed to go, it might not ever. And I'm like, well, I don't like those words. Cause that means I might not ever be able to hike, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, like I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep doing what I need to do. And I went in for that second surgery and it, it was a lot easier to recover from that. Um, it, it was a world of difference between the first time and the second, probably some of it because the initial trauma to physically even, uh, was not there. Like it was before all he really did was how the leg already was, how the bone already was, um, stayed the same, but now there was more support being given to it with the thicker rod next to when he removed the old rod, um, 
and bigger screws had to go in. And that's the part that is a bummer because that's one of the pains that I still have quite a bit of um, is those screws seem to be the reason for like knee pain and like pain in my hip. That hurts worse now than anything else. Um, and with it being colder out, I notice it more. If the barometric pressure is high, like I now think I could be a meteorologist because I know all about barometric pressure and I have it on my phone to where I'm like, oh, I'm hurting. Let me check. Yep, the barometric pressure is high. <laughs> you know, it feels not- like about uh, 20 millibar over here today. <laughs> yeah, no. It's- if it hurts, it's probably 30 or more, but if it doesn't, I'm like, you know, it's under 30. We're good. We're good. And the thing that I realized is that rain doesn't always mean, well, I don't want to say it that way. If it's not raining, it doesn't always mean that you won't have pain. And the barometric pressure can be high, even though it's not raining. But if the barometric pressure is high, it's suggesting there's probably precipitation coming. So these are things, that's why I feel like I could be a meteorologist. I'm getting there, you know. Some of that stuff is like just through trying to monitor myself and my symptoms and like what's going on related to the broken leg that I get it. Like this weather thing makes sense, more sense than it ever did to me before. And I wouldn't even know any of that if I didn't have metal in my body that's kind of like making my those areas like yell at me. Like, excuse me, miss, what are your qualifications to be a meteorologist? Well, I broke my leg. I got screws in my knee. Uh, I know when the pressure is changing, so I don't even need to check maps. I don't need to check uh, 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 simulations. I know exactly from right here, right down here, I can tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually followed up with my um, orthopedic surgeon last week. And he did say, it's been almost a year, and he did say uh, after the first surgery that we're going to give it about a year and see where it's at. And if it's not healed well enough, we're going to have to do something else. And I'm like, oh, no, not a something else. We did a something else just now, you know. And he was like, well, you know, see, we'll see how it goes. This, This should help a lot. And I was going every six weeks. However, I had a car issue during all this COVID stuff that was making it hard for my car to get fixed. Um, It was making it hard for the shop to diagnose the problem as well as getting the part. Um, Well, them diagnosing the problem is part of more of the COVID issue, I think, more so than getting the part. That's a stocking issue that shouldn't affect the COVID, but they had just have somebody from the manufacturer come out to check my car to make sure it wasn't engine related because it just turned off back in um, July, in the middle of July and stopped running. So they ended up um, having the guy come out from the manufacturer and he said, no, it's not the engine. That's when they could say, oh, it's the ECU, which is like the main computer for the car. I'm like, oh, joy, that's an expensive car. You know, this sucks. And I found um, places online that they could program this ECU for so much cheaper than dealership by like $1,100 cheaper. So I was waiting for them to get it programmed correctly. Two months in of them trying to figure that out, they are like, oh, well, 
so this ECU thing, we can't program it. I'm like, well, you know, it's been three months almost. What the heck? Like, why? <laughs> They're like, it wouldn't pass the quality control. I'm like, wow, it would have been great to know that after the first time. And I got a hold of the dealership and said, hey, forget about that part I was going to get because they're, they're idiots. They can't figure it out. Yeah, I need to get the part. And they're like, oh, well, we have it in now from when we ordered it four months ago. I'm like, oh, perfect. They're like, we're, we were about to send it back. I'm like, oh, yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm going to get it. $1,400. I'll get the part and your labor of, you know, $1,800 later. Got the car back. Um, so yeah, I didn't go to my appointments for a while from July to this month. I wasn't able to go, but finally I went and I had the good news. He said, after I, every time I go to the orthopedic surgeon, he would do an x-ray and that's how he could tell how well it's healing. Um, and the x-ray that was just done showed it's almost all the way healed. He said the little bit more it has to go is going to just skyrocket. It's just going to happen very quick, very speedily because of the time frame and how far it is into the healing. Um, it, it like plateaus, you know, um, more so when you get a certain amount of healing versus when it's barely healed, if that makes sense. Um, so that was good news. I was very happy about that. Um, and I understand how that all works now too, more so than ever. I mean, I had broken bones before, but I never understood as much about the concept of healing with bone issues as I did when I had this broken femur and how long it took for this to heal. Like broken ribs take so much shorter to heal my broken arm so much easier. But then again, I didn't have multiple sclerosis then I do now. So that's where I think that that has something to do with it too. And the medication and all that I was supposed to take Tecfidera medication twice a day. Um, but when this accident happened and knowing that it's on an immune suppressant, knowing that my immune system needs to work at a certain level, I decided not that my doctor said it was a good idea, but I decided I was going to take one Tecfidera a day instead of two to try to, you know, kind of balance out this like issue I'm having with making sure that my immune system could, could act like it needs to, but at the same time, like the tech to make sure that I wasn't actually, um, you know, having all these white blood cells eating away at my myelin teeth and my nerves and everything else. And I did see the MS doctor during that time frame, and there was no real skyrocket like she didn't think I needed to change medications, even though I was only taking it once a day. What did happen, what was interesting is certain lesions either went away or got a little bit better, which I didn't think, according to a lot of doctors, that's not possible. However, um, that was something noticed, but then also at the same time, there was a balance of some other areas having lesions that didn't. So that's also very interesting that like that is something that can change and that's what kind of shows there could be a lot of proof with you know the people who said that they had it the healthy plumber and the guy that was in the orchestra um that it's real like oh another guy was um cohen uh he wrote a book called blindside um a football story 
I can't think of his first <laughs> no, no, not that one. Um, his wife was like on the View, something, and he worked for a, a news company, even CNN or something. But yeah, that guy Cohen, he actually um, talked about his MS too. But uh, from my from what I remember, I don't think that he actually overcame it, but he had a real tough time that he wrote about, like being in the wheelchair and stuff like that and how it, it really affected his marriage. Um, my guy, I, I, I'm blessed that he actually, you know, hung in there with me. He took um, FMLA and this is related to the car accident, not my MS, but it's kind of almost like a little glimpse of like, Hey, if the MS acted up to the point where I can't walk, this might be what it looks like, you know? Right. And he was there for me. I mean, you know, there's things, there's times that we would argue or things, you know, weren't the way I wish they were at times with like more extra help. I thought with cleaning and things like that because I couldn't get it done, but like nothing bad happened. Otherwise just whatever house is dirty it's messy it still is and now i'm doing better a lot better anyway i might still have my achiness here and there but overall i could do a lot more than before and uh that's still an area that <laughs> needs to be addressed <laughs> that's my my problem <laughs> now is there any um like support groups or like uh places you go to or follow that you know, have people of the same ilk, um, and they you know kind of share stories, or do you kind of like, are you kind of solo by yourself? I go to my doctors, I might go to therapy, but you know, I'm already living it. I don't need to, you know, hear other people's stories. Yeah, in the beginning, I was going to those multiple sclerosis groups. I could find them online through, I believe that one was the multiple sclerosis society. Um, but then there was this thing I did recently because with the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of support groups now. Like at least it was harder to figure out how they were going about things. I didn't like, I, I totally lost the loop for it, but also with me not driving after the accident, um, I couldn't go to the meetings. Uh, they definitely, you know, we weren't in the pandemic yet. So it's not like there could be a possibility they were being offered online or anything. And one of the things I found very upsetting um, was having MS and the broken leg and the back issue and sometimes not knowing what was causing what and how much they really were playing off of each other. Like I always wish I could have somebody to talk to that knows about both. And that was nearly impossible because if you talk to people with broken legs, they don't have MS. If you talk to people with MS, then they didn't have a broken femur before. So you, I could never really get the answer. I was go because I was going online looking for that information through. There is some like um, chat groups, like uh, chat pages or whatever that you can go on about MS, um, where people talk about things that way. And I, I wasn't getting answers. And then there's a, a hotline. You could call the MS Society and they can have a peer call you. So I was real specific when I requested that 
phone call that I would really like somebody who has had a broken femur and has MS, but they couldn't find that person to link up to me. But they called and they were supportive and they were nice. They talked to me. Um, but at the same time, they couldn't really like help me in like that specific kind of way to answers I was looking for. So that was probably one of the most frustrating things about having those two issues together when nobody really knew. But if I'm just dealing with the MS, when I went to those support groups in person before I was actually diagnosed or right after being diagnosed, they scared the heck out of me. Like, because, because of how I was saying everybody's in wheelchairs and stuff. And I'm like, Oh gosh, like, I'm not going to be able to hike ever again. Like it made my mind jump so far ahead, even though I, it was hard to see that like, these are the more severe, um, cases, you know, these are the people that have the worst symptoms right now. And that's why they're in support groups. I wasn't putting that in perspective. Instead, I was getting freaked out. Like, Oh my God, when am I going to not going to walk? Is it going to be like next month? You know, like, but now that I know that that's, it affects everybody differently. Um, and I might never have to see a time where I, I can't walk, but maybe I will. Um, it is just unpredictable. You'll never really know which way it's going to go. Um, it's just good to have a, maybe like a prepare plan. That's the only thing you can kind of do to help yourself. And the best way for me to be prepared now is that I had to live that time frame of not being able to walk for a different reason that kind of put it in perspective, like, okay. And now I know how to look for resources to help me if I'm having problems with driving or, you know, I need to be transported and they have the lifts and stuff like that. And that's if I'm still living in the same area, but I know places I could call if I'm living somewhere else even to be able to get the answers to some of those things. And it was a lot of uh, research, you know, a lot of phone calls. Oh, I was on the phone so much at first, like just trying to figure out how to make things happen. Oh, but right after I was in the hospital for the first week after the first surgery and everything, I uh, had to go to um, an inpatient physical rehab for a week. And um, because I was too afraid to go home, that's how bad it seemed like that I was afraid to go from well, plus two, the, the, the bedroom was upstairs. There was no way. Um, and sleeping on the couch didn't seem like that would like work. It's not a comfortable enough couch with like the way my back was hurting and everything else. So even though I didn't really want to go in inpatient rehab, it felt like the right thing to do. And it gave uh, my boyfriend too time to kind of get the house more arranged correctly for when I do come home, even though he actually had that done before the week was up when I was in the hospital, he, he did get that done, but it still seemed like the right thing to kind of get myself a little stronger. So I wouldn't need as much, uh, leaning on him. And, um, it, it was good. It was helpful. I really did skyrocket in that week being in there, but still needed so much assistance. So then I had in-home therapist, um, in-home physical therapist and occupational therapist and a nurse that came by for the first, uh, I guess it was like a month and a half. I had that going on um, before I started doing the three times a week um, outpatient physical therapy. So when they were coming into the home, the occupational therapist was pretty cool because she would teach me how to get around the house and get things done. Like there's 
a step when you go from like the living room bedroom <laughs> to like another room, there's a step down and then there's um, the kitchen. So I'm like, well, how am I supposed to get out down that step? Cause I, I really don't feel good about stairs. And she taught me how to move, or especially if I'm trying to move things from one room to the other, she taught me how to use the rollator to kind of bring it down and hold the wall, make sure the rollator was locked and then like kind of step down one leg at a time. And it seems like basic, but in that moment, it feels overwhelming when it's like, you have to learn how to do everything a different way. Right. Yeah. 40 years or whatever you've been doing it one way. And then all of a sudden you have to do it a completely different way. Yeah. Um, so a couple of quick questions before we, uh, we call it an episode. Um, those people that you say that were in the support groups that are like really bad and, you know, you know, wheelchair bound. Um, I know it's case by case, but it, are those the type of people who like, didn't really do anything like take any medicine. They didn't do any therapy. They didn't do healthy eating uh, or something like they just waited too late. Or is it just like kind of luck of the draw? I mean, some people are going to like have very little symptoms and some people are going to have, you know, max load. It's hard to answer the question without some of it being an opinion versus a fact, but I'm going to do my best. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I'll try to pinpoint what might be my opinion versus the fact. Um, now, from hearing some of the stories of those people when I was going to the meetings that were kind of worse off, some of them were diagnosed later. Um, because as I was saying, my six month time frame was actually pretty quick, even though it felt like forever. Where some of these people, it would be two years or more, they might have slight symptoms that they kind of wrote off and didn't really know was something wrong. Because two, for me going to the doctor saying that something was wrong and being kind of like, oh, it's something like minor, you pulled something, you know, like they're they're always saying something that didn't make sense. And you have to argue with the doctors, basically. Like you have to be a really strong advocate for yourself to get through the doctors. And I had to do a lot of that in those six months. And I think that's why it happened because I was fighting for my diagnosis against the system, basically, because it's not something that they automatically want to test for. It's not something that I just knew that the way I was feeling was not normal. This never happened to me before. And I've done a lot of stuff to myself, like other injuries and things like that, where like, I would know, like I've had sore muscles from working out. I've had pulled muscles. It wasn't that. And I knew, and you know, my doctor at the time, my family doctor really was a horrible doctor. Another time I had a lot of pain in my abdomen area on the right side. And I was telling him how bad it hurt. And he's like, oh, well, that's no big deal. And I, I had to insist, like, look, I want an ultrasound. This is not normal. Um, Cause then he tried to say I pulled something. And when he finally um, was concluding the doctor's appointment, he said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and write for you to get this ultrasound just so you could sleep at night. I went and got the ultrasound done and I was told that I had like a pretty big size gallbladder stone. That's why it was hurting. So he was very like a dismissive kind of doctor. And even after that experience, even the way he dealt with my possible MS issue, 
I felt was kind of lame, you know, so it's important to have good doctors and it's important to have to be strong enough to kind of go toe to toe with them when you have to, you know, be insistent, be like, no, this is not normal. I think sometimes being a female makes it harder because one of the things they always want to say is, oh, you're just anxious. Well, (laughs) the hell are you like? I'm here. Yeah, I'm anxious. There's something wrong with me. I don't know what the frig it is. You know, of course I'm, of course I'm anxious. Like as if they don't ever feel anxiety when they, when something's wrong and they don't know what it is. Are you kidding me? I don't know. Us women show it more too. So that makes it to them maybe like, oh, this woman's just crazy when really I'm coming in there with something legit and you just aren't doing your job is what it looks like to me. That's okay. I found better doctors since then. So thank God. <laughs> um, and then I'm trying to think the other part. So then you have people that maybe they eat whatever they want. You know, maybe they don't have a very good diet. They don't pay attention to that stuff. Some of them actually admitted not taking their medicine anymore because they don't want to deal with it um, or they don't want to switch. But that's less common. That was even less common. But there was just a a maybe like a 2% out of the group that might that might be the reason where um, most of it, they were older most of them were older and this might be the longevity of the disease and how it, how it progresses. Um, and there's two types of MS also there's uh, relapsing remitting. And then there's um, I think it's called progressive, not like the insurance, but it's something like that. And that one is worse, right? Because it's going to break down your system faster in the sense that that one, you're probably more at risk to not be able to walk. Uh, with the relapsing and remitting, which is what I've been diagnosed with so far, um, the only way they can really tell is over time. And I'm a pretty early diagnosis. Like I've only been diagnosed for not even two full years. So it, it's basically two years though, this, this month. Huh. Um, but that's still pretty early diagnosis. So in another like four more years, they might change my diagnosis to the other one if I have worse symptoms and things are looking different on my MRIs and different things like that. Um, whereas the re- relapsing remitting one, that one could mean that I might get in the position where I can't walk, but then I could come out of it. It's like a flare up sort right. of. I mean, that's a whole thing of, uh, relapse and remission you have it you don't you have it you don't i mean right right exactly so my symptoms could be bad other times more than others um sometimes more than others like maybe more stress could bring it on um like the broken leg definitely made my ms symptoms flare up more i had the tingling in the fingers that came back when i hadn't had that for a while um i think the stress of that physically on me and emotionally could have brought that out um, and I struggled with it off and on during the time frame of the past two and a half years, but it never got worse than that MS wise, other than achiness, fatigue, stupid stuff. Like that's kind of common stuff. Um, but at its worst, it never got worse than what I had experienced before that I know of because the other symptoms I'm pretty sure were all related to having the broken leg and the back issues and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, so 
the good thing is so far is that I, I, you know, if I have these symptoms that pop up, I probably will be able to, um, come back from them, like, you know, not walk and then walk, but, but maybe not if they have the wrong diagnosis for me. And if I end up not being able to walk and two years goes by and I don't get better from it, I don't end up being able to do that again, then it might mean that I have the other form of MS. So that's kind of something else that, you know, I, I don't really think about much. I can't sit there and worry about it. I just right. so then you might actually add, add stress to it and either force it to happen or uh, ha- make it happen quicker if you overstress about it. And, you know, like I said, it might make it worse or, you know, bring it on sooner. Yeah, no doubt. That's where the irony of that whole saying, like self-fulfilling prophecy, people think, oh yeah, whatever, that's BS. And it's like, well, is it? Because sometimes it can be true. You know, like if you create this negativity and add this extra stress, now your body and emotions are responding to that. And you're kind of setting yourself up for failure, you know? So having a positive mindset is what both of those um, people who so-called overcame you know, MS, which, you know, it sounds like they really did from what I was reading about what they would look like at first, what their labs were and stuff like that versus what it was later after them living this better lifestyle, that positive thinking is a huge thing that is so important. Um, you know, so going to therapists, if you need to, that kind of stuff is, is helpful because it, especially when you're first diagnosed, because it's kind of scary uh, it's that unknown and you don't know, even if you have the diagnosis, it doesn't mean you know how the disease is going to act for you. It doesn't mean that you're going to know all the symptoms and you know, the time frames. there's so much unknown. And to me, that was always an area I had a problem with. And I think in the beginning, that was one of the reasons why it was, it was pretty difficult to wrap my head around. And I, I was definitely overly, uh, worried and concerned and you know. I try not to be, but it's just kind of natural in a way when you had an active lifestyle and these things that are your hobbies are active and that your passions. And then all of a sudden you're like, Ooh, might not be able to do that anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like you said, it's one of those things where you, you can't predict how severe it's going to be. Uh, you know, like you said, you might have almost no symptoms. You might have it all. Um, and that's, you know, that, unknowing is what makes it worse sometimes than you know uh knowing it in a way but um before we go on any longer i think i want to thank you candace for being on the show um you shared a lot of information um more than welcome to come back anytime share more stories um we can go more into how you know like living with you uh maybe affecting other people uh positively negatively i mean i've always known you as a positive person so um you know um i'm glad you come on and share your story thank you thanks right. for having me hey, you're welcome uh so like i said i want to say uh goodbye to everyone thank you for listening and see you next time you have been listening to firing synapses with matt hamity I want to thank everyone who listened to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends. Also, feel free to send all questions 
comments, constructive criticisms, and new topics to mhamityphoto at gmail.com. That's M-H-A-M-I-D-Y photo at gmail.com. It just may end up on a future episode. If you would also like to help the show, you can follow me on all your social media platforms, which includes Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it's still free. Otherwise, goodbye, everybody.